Uh, why don't we pray? Father, we thank you that you do speak to us. And we pray now as we, we get into John's Gospel for this term and the next, we pray, please, that you'll open our eyes just to how amazing Jesus is and how much we need him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, Dave asked the question before. How, how would you know God if you saw him? Uh, if he turned up in the building right now, would you, would you recognise him? I think maybe if he was sitting just over there amongst the Wanderers supporters who are all very sad this evening because uh, they lost the grand final this afternoon. But anyway, uh, yeah, they lost to Adelaide. If anyone, anyway, yeah. Uh, well, would you know God if he happened to be sitting there amongst that little group? Well, which one would you, maybe he is there? Turn around, have a look. Which, which one would you pick to be God? Anyway, uh, uh, would God, if he turned up, be like the confused alien in the cartoon who's standing at the petrol station talking to the petrol pump saying, take me to your leader? You know, he doesn't quite know what's going on and who's who. Uh, or, or would he radiate godness somehow? Uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 12, there's an incident where people thought that they recognised God amongst them. Uh, it's about a guy called Herod Agrippa, who's one of seven Herods in the Bible, which is a bit confusing, but there you go. But, but we read about him in Acts chapter 12. Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. We're not told what it is or what he was talking about uh, or why it was so grand that day, but they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and he died. There you go. Not many people's favourite part of the Bible. Anyone here, that's your favourite passage? Uh, only if you're a little boy in primary school, is that your favourite passage? And the little boys really just love the last bit. He was eaten by worms and he died. Uh, but think about it for a moment. The crowds are there and they, they see something about Herod. They see him in his glory. They heard him speak and they said, this is God. This must be a God. He wasn't, of course, he was just a jumped up little puppet king for the Roman Empire. But on this particular occasion, he was perceived to be God. Now, actually, the same story is told by a guy writing at the end of the first century, a guy called Josephus, who was a Jew. Uh, he was a traitor to the Jews, though, and he sold himself and the country out to the Romans so that he wouldn't be killed when they would later rebel. But he wrote a little potted history of Judaism up to his present day to help the Romans understand why the Israelites were like they were, why they were so difficult. And here's what he says about this same event with Herod Antipas. He says he was held a festival in honour of Caesar. And at the festival, a great multitude were brought together of the most important persons and dignitaries throughout his province. On the second day of the festival, he put on a garment made entirely of silver, of truly wonderful texture, and came into the amphitheatre early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, and it shone out in a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread horror over those who looked intently upon him. At that moment his flatterers cried out, one from one place, another from another, that he was a god. And they added, be merciful to us. For although up till now we have reverenced you as a man only, yet henceforth we shall know that you are an immortal. And hearing this, the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. It's described the same instance, it's giving a lot more detail, isn't it? What struck them so much about Herod was his marvellous 
spectacular silver gown. And, and he got there just at the right time. I bet he planned it. You know, so the sun was just coming over the horizon and the crowds already gathered and, and it just shone out and they saw this radiance resplendent in majesty and, and they said, it's God. God has come. It was his glory that struck them. Now, in one sense, that seems right, doesn't it? That uh, it would be the glory of God that would mark him out if he came. But what would the true glory of God look like? Would it be this sort of hazy glow around him? Uh, And would you recognise his glory if he came? Uh, Would you recognise his glory as being any different to Herod in his marvellous gown? Now, just to finish the story, because I know you want to hear the end, Josephus goes on to say that soon afterwards Herod looked up and saw an owl. Mm. Uh, And immediately he understood this bird was a messenger of ill tidings and he fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain arose in his belly in a most violent manner. He was carried into the palace and worn out by the pain in his belly for five days. He departed this life being 54 years of age and in the seventh year of his reign. There you go. And it's weird, isn't it, that people will say, well, oh, it's in the Bible, so you know it's probably a fairy tale. But then you read it in this guy Josephus or some other guy from history who's a superstitious trader who's sucking up to his masters. He says the same thing, and all of a sudden, oh, it's history now. Uh, tells you something about people's prejudices, doesn't it, rather than what really is history or not. But I'd put my bet on the Bible over Josephus any day of the week. However, that's, that's a side point. Let's go back to the question. How would you recognise God? What would the glory of God look like if he came? Well, today we're beginning a study of John's Gospel, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life written by his contemporaries. Uh, the other three are very similar to each other and John's a little bit different. The other three kind of follow the chronological order of Jesus' life whereas, whereas John's account really picks up big themes and big ideas and sort of mix up together. So things that happen at the end of Jesus' life will, will turn up at the start of John's Gospel but he's not really worried about the chronology event, just what Jesus is like and who he is. And that John thinks of Jesus as God on earth is immediately obvious from the very unusual way he starts his book. There you go. You want to turn it up. John chapter 1. I think it was page 1027 in the Brown Pew Bibles. John chapter 1. You want to follow this along, work out if what I'm saying is right. It's what the Bible's teaching. 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now, it's a bit strange to our ears, the kind of way he's describing it, but to the Greeks and Jews of John's day, it would all make perfect sense. He starts by talking about this being, this thing called the Word. The Word. Who or what is the Word? Well, the ancient Greeks used the word word uh, to mean the the rational principle by which everything existed. Uh, reason itself, the pattern that, that stood behind the universe and, and gave it its, you know, its, its form. And to some people they reckon that John's trying to convert Greek thinkers uh, to Christianity by equating the absolute rationality that they believed in, this kind of pattern that's out there, and he's just uh, calling that God. So no, let's call that God and then we're on the same page. 
Uh, it's like saying, well, you know, you believe there's a blueprint for everything. Let's call that blueprint God. Uh, but I think he's saying much more than that. Because for those who know anything at all about the Bible, John's taking our minds back to the very first page of the whole thing. To, in fact, the first line, to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. The opening words of the Bible are, anyone know? In the beginning. That's a pretty handy thing to have in the beginning, isn't it? Right? <laughs> in the beginning. Just like it is here in John, in the beginning. In the beginning, what happened in Genesis? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And how did God create everything? How did he make the heavens and the earth? Well, he did it by, by speaking, by his words. He spoke words and, and galaxies appeared. He spoke words and there was a sun and a moon. He spoke and, and there was creatures and birds and, and land and sea and there was humans. We all came into existence. God created the world by his word. And so at the very least, the word of God for John is this powerful force which, which brings existence out of non-existence, which makes everything out of nothing. And it's that same word of God as the Old Testament goes on that, that brings judgments on God's enemies and that, that brings salvation. God just has to speak and it happens. It, you know, it gives wisdom and it gives life. And yet for John, this powerful creative thing called the word is not just an impersonal force, but it's a personal agent. It's a someone, not just a something. It's a someone who is both with God, that is, he's hanging out with God in his heavenly home, but he's also somehow also God. Uh, the word was with God and the word was God. Now, that's a bit of a mystery. How can someone be with someone but also be them? Uh, well, that's, that's something we might work out as we go along in John's Gospel. But it's not until verse 14 that the bombshell drops that this very word of God who created the universe comes to earth as a man, the man Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the incredible claim of Christianity. The word of God who made the world came into the world. He took on human flesh. He became a person. He became one of us and he lives with us. And that's who Jesus is. He's God become man. But notice verse 4 and 5. There's an issue. It's not all rosy. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Well, that's not so surprising if, if he made everything. But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. There's this issue, and the issue is that there's darkness. There's not just light and light. There's darkness as well. And in fact, he came to shine his light into the darkness. And as the book goes on, it's clear that darkness represents everything that's opposed to God and his good ways. It, you know, it's evil and chaos and demons and the devil himself. They're all of the darkness. And yet one of the most terrifying realities that Jesus is going to highlight over and over again is that, that we humans by nature love the darkness. Our deeds are evil and we don't want to be found out. I mean, you think... Have you? Is there anyone in this world who knows everything about you? You know, lots of people know the good things about you that you tell them, right? But the dark secrets, there may be a few people who you've let into some of them. But we don't like being embarrassed. We don't like people finding out about our deep, dark secrets, let alone God. 
And so we hide, and John's going to go on to talk about that, that we hide from the light because our deeds are evil. And so to have the light shining upon us in all its radiant glory is going to be a bit uncomfortable. In fact, it's going to bring us into conflict with this word. But right at the start, John just tells us the outcome. Okay, If there's going to be a war between light and dark, who's going to win? Well, the word who gives light and life is going to win. The darkness, he says, cannot understand the light. Well, that's, that's part of the meaning of the phrase, but it's a lot stronger than that. The darkness cannot overcome the light. God's light, which comes through his word, will triumph. He will win. Now, at one level, that should be a pretty exciting prospect, right? That God is going to win. That God will triumph over evil. Uh, at least it should be an exciting prospect. I mean, how many of us struggle day to day with the reality of evil in our lives and in this world, um, the evil actions that people perpetrate against one another? And perhaps you're the victim of something, either in your family life or in your work situation, maybe you've been a victim of a crime, or you know, even if it's just those ridiculous phone calls saying your Windows computer has a problem, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> them every other day. I don't even have a Windows computer. Mac all the way. Anyway, so, or maybe that's one of the evils of this world as well. But, uh, uh, yeah, so there's those evils and wouldn't it be good if to know that they were overcome, that they were defeated. There's the evils of pain and suffering that, that I know many in our church have gone through, although you guys are all still young and healthy, although, you know, it's, you know, Steve is rubbing Nikki's back beforehand because you know pregnancy's painful and it's really difficult, you know, kind of thing. And it's only going to get worse, you know, kind of thing. I play soccer on Thursday nights. Every game, it takes me three days for my ankle to recover because I'm old and fat, you know. And uh, the evils of family breakdown. I know several of you have experienced that. And you've seen the damage that that does and the hate and the bitterness the evils of abuse and violence, the evils when friends betray you. We uh, Workplace power struggles, we, we see it all. We experience it ourselves and it wears us down. Um, Dean Hasler popped over on Friday night um, over to games night. He didn't come to play games. He just popped in to say hi and he just come from the scene of the murder at Bankstown, that awful, awful thing. And he'd been canvassing, you know, for witnesses, you know, all afternoon. And that's just one incident in a world that's full of hate, lies, greed, bitterness, distrust, you name it. But the good news is that the darkness will not have the final say. The word who brings light and life will triumph. The bad news is that, you know, we might just be part of the problem that he has to clean out. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to pass over the little section there about John the Baptist. I think it's a reward, a bit of study. But uh, it, it says, you know, there's this guy, John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way to announce the light's arrival, which is pretty weird. I was wondering about that. So why would someone need to announce the light coming in the darkness? We'll figure that out in a minute. But we'll skip over that and come to verse 10, which is the surprising twist to the story. The word shows up in person. He's pointed to by John the Baptist. He comes in fulfilment of prophecy. The one who is the creator of the universe and the giver of light and life. How are people going to react when he shows up? You know, will they recognize him? 
Are they going to perceive who he is? Will they see his glory and start chanting, this is God, this must be God like they did with Herod? And the answer is, fat chance. You know, not likely, to put it mildly. How do people react when he comes? Well, verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The reaction of the vast majority of people, both then and still today, was that they either would not or could not recognise him for who he was. Now, that seems pretty strange, though, doesn't it? It's, this is not some pop star that we're talking about. This is the creator of the whole thumping world you know, turning up, the architect, the author, you know, and no one can recognise him. But why not? Why, why couldn't they recognise him? Why wouldn't they recognise him? Was he disguised? Maybe he was just wearing a pair of glasses and suddenly he went from being Superman into a mild-mannered reporter. <laughs> kind of thing. You know, you can't recognise me now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was it because they weren't able to recognise him? Yeah. There was only one really bad identical picture uh, or a blurry photo of God to go by and so it wasn't really their fault when they shut up and people were like, ah, is that him? Oh, if you squint and look this way, well, maybe you can recognise him. You know, is, is that the issue? Was it because they weren't thinking straight? They had a, they just had a big brain snap. Uh, like a few years ago at the last church I was at, I did a wedding for a guy called Ryan Pittman. And uh, at the rehearsal he introduced me to his sister, who was going to be the chief bridesmaid, Yana. Yana Pittman. Uh, there you go. And uh, didn't click uh, who Yana Pittman was, and so I asked her politely what she did for a living. Uh, she said, um, I'm an athlete. I went, oh, Okay. You know, what kind of athlete are you? Uh, you know, throw javelins, what do you do? Uh, hurdles, uh, long distance, you know, sort of running on the track. Oh, okay, all right. You any good? <laughs> yeah, won a few medals. Oh, what, like locally? The Olympics. Uh, oh, Yana Pippen. <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Was it like that when God showed up? You know, just this global brain snap. Or was it something more sinister? They just didn't want to see him. They just refused to recognise him. It was too confronting to accept him for who he was. And as we go on in the Gospel of John, we're going to find that that's exactly what it was. It's not that they were ignorant of who he was, but they were ignoring who he was. And there is a world of difference between being ignorant of something and ignoring it. Okay? Being ignorant of something, maybe it's not your fault, it's excusable. Ignoring something, well, that's culpable. Okay? In fact, it's utterly damnable. And one of the major things that they failed to recognise about him was the true glory of God that he displayed. It's not the same kind of glory as Herod, shining in his resplendent silver gown in the morning sun. He came with a glory of an altogether different kind, a far greater glory, a far more incredible glory, a far more important glory for us to perceive and to know about and to understand and receive. It's in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's the glory that everyone is supposed to have seen? What's the glory that he came with, the glory that the vast majority of people at the time and still today fail to perceive? What is the true glory of God? And should they have known what to look for? And the answer is absolutely they should have known what to expect when God showed up because there was an occasion 1,500 years or so beforehand when the hero of the nation, a guy called Moses, who we read about, who was one of the most significant people to have ever lived in the world, and particularly for the Jews, he was the one who had led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. He'd given them the law of God, including the Ten Commandments, uh, and, and he'd led them across the desert for 40 years to the Promised Land. Uh, you might think of that incredible blockbuster about him, the Prince of Egypt. That's not really a blockbuster. I think of Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Anyone ever seen that? Yeah, the back people. There you go. Good on you, Vic. Someone's seen a worthy worth seeing. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Would you recommend it, Vic? You wrote it. <laughs> you started it as well, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, very good. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there's this occasion when, uh, in Exodus chapter 33, when when Moses, having led them out and given the law and all that kind of stuff, he 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 pleaded with God to be allowed to see God's glory. Now, I don't know what you think God should have done at that point, just smite him for being, you know, impudent. He said, I've heard your words, God, I've led your people, now show me your glory. To which God replied, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord. See, Moses wants to see the glory of God and God says, okay, I'll show you my goodness. The true glory of God is not medals, it's not wealth, it's not flashy cars, it's not resplendent silver robes. His glory is not even primarily in his power, though he's more powerful than anybody else. His glory is not in gold or in weight or in money or in beauty, but it's in his goodness. His goodness is his greatness. That's his splendour. That's his glory. And that is what he was going to show Moses as he passed by. And so God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock because he can't see the fullness of God or he's going to die. And in 34 verse 6, we find out what happened. He says, The Lord came down and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And he goes on about that. And he's saying that that's what it means for God to be God. That's, that's the glory of God is his character. And there's two key terms right in the middle of it all, which all the other things kind of amplify and describe. And the two words right in the middle are love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness. And, and as the Old Testament goes on, God keeps being called by these two words, which kind of most of the time appear together, that God is love and he is faithful. Uh, 
and they appear together because they are the summary of the great revelation of God to Moses in Exodus 34, the revelation of the glory of God. And it's all caught up with these two words. Uh, one is the Hebrew word chesed. You want to say that with me? Chesed. There you go. You've got to kind of spit. <laughs> Yeah, kind of chesed, there you go. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, does it? It doesn't help you at all, uh, knowing that word. Um, but it means love. It's not, not in the sense of boy-girl love. It, it's love in the sense of kindness, of generosity, of grace, mercy, it's giving. Uh, it's sometimes translated in, in some of the other translations as loving kindness because it's trying to capture the essence of it all. It's loving kindness. His love and his mercy mean that he's compassionate. So he's not like the banks or he's not like your boss or your lecturer, right? Um, you know, He's not going to foreclose on you because you missed a payment. He's not going to sack you for an accounting error. He's not just going to give you a, a fail because you didn't hand your assignment in on time. He's loving and generous and he's, he's seeking to give. And the other word, the other Hebrew word is emeth. You want to say that? Emeth. Now, yeah, it sounds a little bit like uh, he's making, you know, illegal drugs. But, <laughs> but emeth means truth, and it's it's not true in the sense of perfectly accurate information all the time. Although God knows everything perfectly, it's true in the sense of something that's entirely trustworthy, reliable, completely dependable, faithful. Believe it or not, you are sitting on true chairs at the moment. There you go. They are true pews. Uh, and it's not that they are, you know, the intellectually most pure pews in all the world. You know, it's not that, you know, scribble on the bottom of them are, are the secrets of the greatest mysteries of all humankind. You can look later on, okay? Especially that one over there where the trapdoor is, over by BJ. Uh, that's why he sits there, I think, so he can disappear mid-church. Uh, <laughs> Uh, welcome back. We just saw you pop up. <laughs> um, if you've never noticed, there's a trapdoor in the church over in that pew. But anyway, no idea where it's there. I just figured the previous minister had it installed to bury his mistakes. But anyway, they, um, but but they're true chairs. They're completely faithful, reliable, dependable. They'll give you a bad back. They're not particularly comfortable, but they'll hold up your weight which is what chairs are meant to do. I know that because they'll hold up my weight and that's saying something. Um, and that's what emeth means. It's faithful, reliable, dependable. That is, God is not a used car salesman who's going to try and sell you a lemon. He's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. He's not a dishonest politician who's, who's promising with one hand but then when he's in power is not going to do it. You know, he is emeth. He is utterly faithful and reliable. And those two words sum up the character of God in the scriptures. If you want to know what God is like, he is full of chesed and emeth. He is full of love and faithfulness. And these two words keep on popping up all over the place. One quick example, uh, Psalm 117, which is famous for something. Anyone know Psalm 117, what it's famous for? It's really, really short. Psalm 119 is really, really long. It's the longest chapter, but just two, two psalms before that, shortest chapter in the whole Bible. It's like two sentences. 
Here I'll read it to you. It'll take me all of 30 seconds. Uh, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. You know, all the world should praise God. Why? Well, because of his character. What is it about his character? It's love and faithfulness. And you find that running right through the Old Testament. That's God's goodness, his love and faithfulness. Or another way to say it would be his, his grace and his truth. And that is his glory. It's always been the glory of God. It always will be. And that is the glory that he came with. Look at it there, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only come from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of chesed and emeth, full of loving kindness and faithfulness. There were people who saw the glory of Herod, but they didn't perceive it properly. And they thought, well, that's a God. That's what the glory of God must look like, but they were wrong. There were other people who who saw the glory of God truly in the person of Jesus, but but they didn't recognise it at all. They didn't perceive it. It's some some guy from from Nazareth. You know, it's like it's like being from Crookwall. You know, country New South Wales. Yeah, and what good comes from there? Well, Alison comes from there, so something was better. You know, it's it's a hick country town full of nobodies. You know, he's he's just a carpenter. You know, I know him, his dad's Joseph, his mum's Mary, you know, know his brothers and sisters, you know, went hanging out, drinking beer with them down the road the other day. I went to school with Jesus. You know, he's a nothing, he's nobody. Others saw him as a carpenter turned rabbi, that he was a miracle worker, great preacher, huge crowds followed him, very, um, you know, uh, very tremendous charisma, but, but he was a failure and a failed messiah because his own people betrayed him in the end. They betrayed him into the hands of the Romans. You know what they did to him? They just, you know, they crucified him. They executed him. The worst kind of humiliating death ever. And even as he was dying, they mocked him. They spat on him. They poured scorn in him. You know, that sign above his head, the king of the Jews, you know. And it shows you what the Romans thought of the Jews, if that's their king, right? So, you know, you, know, you can all get stuffed, you know, kind of thing. But for those who had eyes to see it back then, and who have eyes to see it even today. If you know what to look for, it's there in stark reality in Jesus. It is staring you in the face. Jesus came as the loving, merciful, generous one. And he came as the truthful, faithful one. There are no lies in him. There's no sin in him. He always spoke the truth. He, he came to do the Father's will and he was obedient even though it cost him greatly. It cost him his life. He always honoured and obeyed his Father. He was faithful to his Father even unto death. For his Father called upon him to obey even to the point of crucifixion. That was God's plan. It wasn't just the enemies betrayed him. And indeed it was there on the cross that you actually see the, the true glory of God in all of its fullness. The cross is where you ultimately see his grace and his truth, his mercy and faithfulness, because it was there on the cross that he was paying not for his own sins. He was paying for the sins of the world. He was not paying for his own sins. He was paying for ours. That, that's where he was overcoming the darkness. That's where he was destroying evil and the devil and conquering even death itself. 
Because of our culpable ignorance, frankly, we deserve to die and to go to hell and to burn under God's judgment forever. And without him, that's exactly what's going to happen to us. But in his grace and truth, he came to pay for the sins of a world in rebellion to God. In his love, he poured out his life that others might live. In his faithfulness, he went through the pain, fulfilling the plans of his heavenly Father to save people. And he keeps his promises today, his promises of love and to forgive and to restore any who will come to him. That is where you see the glory of God. That's where you see his goodness, completely generous and loving to his enemies, full of grace and truth. How do you recognise God when he turns up? That's how. By his love and faithfulness, by his grace and truth. And that's what we're going to see over the next few months as we engage with Jesus through this book of John. But have you recognised just who this Jesus is? Have you come to terms with him? Have you seen his glory? Have you acknowledged the truth and come to him and, and received his love and experienced his faithfulness? Let me assure you, everything hinges on whether you will come to him. Everything hinges on it. Because if you keep ignoring him, you will get exactly what you have earned. But here's the promise for those who will recognise him and receive him. It's in verse 12. I skipped it before. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. It's a great thing to be part of a loving family. It's incredible to be part of the family of God. Are you a child of God? There's only one way that you can be, and that is to receive Jesus in all his glory in his grace and truth, to understand he died for you, that he's alive again, that he holds out his promise to you, and he'll be faithful to the end, and to give yourself to him, to trust him. Have you perceived his glory, the glory of the one and only, come from the Father, full of grace and truth? Father, we thank you for your mercy on this dark world, on us, that you would send your only son, the creator of all things, to come and be part of this broken creation, but even more to suffer the insults, the mockery and death at the hands of people who hated him. And, Father, we know that we would be among them had we been there. Father, help us to be those who perceive, who see his glory, who understand it and receive him. We thank you that your promise is that those who do are your children, adopted by you. And so we pray, please, and not just for us, but to all who will come along this term, 
to all the different events, to church, they will hear, they will understand and they will receive this one who has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have mercy on us and on our community and on Sydney and Australia and this world. Pour out your spirit that many might know the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him, rely on him, turn to him and receive from his grace and truth. In his name we pray and for his glory. Amen.